Welcome to How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. My guest this week is Pierre-Louis Asayag, the CEO and co-founder of Tracker, the world's most powerful and effective influencer management platform. A tracker lets marketers scale their influencer marketing programs by focusing on the people with the greatest impact on their objectives. Their customers include Coca-Cola, HP, OpenTable, Capital One, Kiehl's, Travelocity, SAP, and Adidas. Um, if you haven't heard of these guys, you really got to get clued in. Uh, it turns out today, half of the top 50 communications agencies in the world use Tracker to drive successful social programs and earn more attention by engaging with the right people. Uh, an amazing achievement for a company just in the process of raising its first round of institutional capital. Uh, I've known Pierre-Louis for a long time. He's a longtime MarTech veteran, um, deep expertise in advertising and marketing innovation across the digital space. After starting his career at P&G, Pierre-Louis became Peugeot Citron's first director of new media, heading up an international portfolio of information technology projects. He went on to join the front lines of the internet economy at places including Viant and Optaros, bringing blue chip customers the vision and execution they needed to survive and thrive in a media landscape that was being transformed by the slow, painful death of traditional mass media. In our second segment today, we're going to talk about a subject near and dear to any entrepreneur's heart, the challenge of deciding when to raise money. A tracker's been remarkably capital efficient in the way it's grown into a global company. And that's because Pierre Louis has some strong views on the relative importance of customer revenue and investor capital. He also has a very specific and I think pretty unique way of thinking about when to go raise money. And it's a model based on aligning your interests with that of investors. I think could save a lot of us a lot of headaches as we journey down the road. All right, if you haven't had a chance to do so yet, please take a minute to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Overcast, or Pocket Cast, and please consider giving us a quick five-star review on iTunes. Uh, it really helps spread the word, and I promise you, uh, I will sincerely appreciate the gesture. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Now, if you're already noticing that we sound a little better this week than we usually do, uh, I want to give a big shout out to David Cancel and Dave Gearhart uh, for their help in uh, moving me out of ghetto mode uh, on my podcasting rig here and uh, hooking me up with some uh, with some sweet gear. Uh, Pierre Loic actually commented on it, and we will pick up our conversation there. Yeah, so I, I had started this with kind of the ghetto version, um, and then did a, did a major infrastructure upgrade here. Um, <laughs> actually, I did a podcast with David Cancel and Dave Gerhard, and they they had this sweet kit, and I listened to it, and it just sounded so much better. And I was like, okay, give me the specs, and then That's I just funny. went to Amazon and picked it picked it all up. Nice. Um, 
All right, so uh, welcome, Pierre Loic. Thank you for agreeing to uh, do this. We had a, a, a great dinner last night and kind of caught up on the state of your business, and um, I appreciate you coming back into the city to spend some time. Great to be here and great to be back in Boston. Yeah, good to have you. All right, so um, uh, we start these things really with a, with a pretty simple question, which is uh, where were you born? Where would you grow up? Uh, born and raised in Paris. Uh, studied my whole life in Paris and got my first job out of France. So probably the only French guy who never worked in France. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, uh, it's, it's been quite a journey. So I've been actually out of, uh, out of France for, geez, almost 25 years now. Tell us a little bit about growing up uh, in Paris. And uh, do you have siblings? Like, what was your, how big was your family? Like, give, give us a, f- a flavor uh, for sure. it. Sure. I actually have a big family. I have uh, five siblings, three brothers and two sisters. Um, and uh, where are you in the birth order of that? Uh, I'm number two. Yeah, number two. Um, and um, the the background is that both my parents are teachers, or were teachers, I should say. Um, so never really grew up with sort of either the the business streak or the entrepreneur streak. It was just you know came later in life. Yeah. Um, but uh, growing up there with a big family was, uh, was fun. It was also very uh, sedentary in many ways. So all of my family outside of me lives within a 10-mile radius. Right. In the city? Uh, in the city. And uh, I'm the black sheep in there. Right. And, you know, uh, Paris is such a, you know, people have very romantic notions of, I can picture you on your bike with a beret and a loaf of French bread in the, in the basket. Like, was, that, was it like that? Or was while, it? While smoking g- gitan and, uh, <laughs> and my cheese perfume. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Every French person. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> You're issued those things. Is that right? Uh, Absolutely. It's part of a... Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Like, a, a, the, the notion of exotic is really the notion of something that you're, is not, isn't familiar. Right. Um, so to me, when people tell me, t- tell me about how romantic Paris is, I, I don't quite see it because that's home yeah. more than anything. And French people will say that San Francisco, Boston feel exotic. Yeah. Right. So I think it's just, it's a matter of perspective. Parisians, I've never known a Parisian who didn't think Paris was the most beautiful city. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's funny because in, um, uh, in hindsight, I don't think that I appreciated all the virtues of Paris while growing up there. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think that most French people do either because it's, your day-to-day life is the same everywhere. You, right. you eat, you sleep, you work. Um, and I don't think that people spend the time and to reflect on, you know, I'm three blocks away from the Eiffel Tower or sure, yeah. I grew up a block away from uh, Bastille. So you have all these special places that uh, it's almost like plumbing. You only know that you need it. We don't have it anymore. Yeah. You know, it's, um, I think New York is similar in that respect. Um, my wife and I were talking about taking the kids to, to New York, and, and she said, um, you know, maybe we'll, we'll go to the Statue of Liberty or whatever. And I was like, you know, I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. And she's like, you lived in New York for 10 years and never went to the Statue of Liberty? And I'm, I said, New Yorkers don't go to the Statue of Liberty. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Um, so uh, I, can, I can definitely relate to that. So where did you go to uh, undergrad? <laughs> So I went to, so the French system is a little different than it, it works in, uh, in the U.S. You're, for some professions, like in, uh, in business and in engineering, uh, undergrad and grad school are bundled together. And so I went to business school in the, the School of Management in, uh, in Paris, one of the few top schools in the, in the country. Um, yeah, and I, I studied there for five years, so undergrad and grad school combined. Right. Um, 
I made the mistake of, uh, of taking a year off in between to go work. And it was probably the worst thing possible because I had no desire to come back to school after that. Really? Uh, I felt like I was wasting my time. And why, why is that? Where, where, does that in, you know, where does that intensity come from? It sounds like it wasn't shared by your family. It's not the culture. Like in, in France, they never ask you what you do, right? So where, where, do, you, where do you think that comes from? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I think um, I, I've had a, a nag of a time for solving problems and just not, you know, feeling uh, obligated or uh, incented to help solve problems that I saw there and nobody was taking care of. Yeah. So like the, for me, the entrepreneurship streak was not so much, you know, I don't want to have a boss or I want to do my thing, I want to make money, but more I see this nagging problem that nobody's taking care of that I, I really should. Right. It actually started when I was, uh, when I was at school. I, um, the, the exam to get into business school in, uh, in France uh, has a, a process where you interview these kids to come into the school. So they do like a physical interview for which you have no training before. So there's no right. program that teaches the 17-year-old how to behave dur- during an interview. And I thought it was the stupidest thing because that's the thing that counts the most when you come in. So while I was in school, I actually started a, a small business with some of my friends to do this for uh, applicants to the, to the school, to the, right. in the French system. So like it's things like this. And again, I wasn't trying to make money or anything. It was just something fun that we'd do because nobody else would. Yeah, a natural problem solver. I guess. Um, so um, um, h- how did you end up landing an opportunity outside of France and making the decision <laughs> to leave? Um, so it was actually decided for me, uh, sort of. Um, I, uh, I started working for, for Procter & Gamble at first uh, out of the UK when they were still headquartered in, uh, there in, the, in Europe. And uh, this is where I, I did like the year off in between. And then when I finished school, uh, I wanted to go back there. And I happened uh, to, uh, to be the very last year of the military service being compulsory in France. After that, it became sort of professional army. Right. Um, and the French army had um, this uh, scheme going on where for any valuable asset grad student, uh, they would do a deal with French companies abroad where they would basically send uh, a young executive into a French company who gets paid military dollars while the army was getting the salary of the person. Right. So they wouldn't make money of this. And, uh, and you know, folks like me would be happy because we don't have to shoot at things or people. Right. Um, so so that's, that's what I did. Initially, my, my plan was to do it with, uh, with PNG that uh, had a whole plan to pretend they were a French company. Uh, it didn't work out, so I ended up joining Peugeot Citroën. Got it. Um, yeah, so that that's how, and that just, I just, I never really had a plan to leave my life abroad. It sort of happened, and after a while, it, um, you know, it takes a life of its own. Like the notion of going back after a long time is just, it, it's it's uh, kind of irrelevant because sure. the place you left is not there anymore. Yeah, you know, P and G is one of those storied companies where um, people um, people come from there definitely have a way of thinking about brands and. Um, um, and particularly in the consumer packaged goods space, were you there long enough to kind of pick that up, or was it just a? Do you feel like your experience at PNG shaped the way you thought about uh, brands and marketing? So interestingly for me, it impacted me less with the branding aspect and more with sales. So a, any young exec at PNG starts with at least six months in sales, right? Irrespective of your of your next role, and so uh, my first six months at Procter and Gamble, I think it was nine months, 
in my case, were spent in a car with my my bag and uh, and just selling laundry products to supermarkets. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's reality. That's where the rubber meets the road, man. Absolutely, and it was probably the most valuable accelerated learning experience I've had in my whole life. Which yeah. which is part of the reason why I thought going back to school was a huge waste of time. Sure, um, but I, I I learned outside of this at PNG because uh, I was working there at the their um, media and uh, and promotions um, department. I I learned there the the value of measurement, the value of uh, of attributing dollars, and the way that we're thinking about uh, building out the the massive brands that they had. Right. Uh, so I think more that side for me stuck with me than the the branding itself. Got it. Tell us about uh, Peugeot Citroën. Yeah. So I was probably the only guy in that whole company that had like two hundred thousand people that really could not care for cars. Uh, I just landed there by accident because the PNG thing didn't work out, and I needed to find an alternative, and that was the alternative. And they they were kind enough to to host me, but I, w- I was never a car aficionado, and I would sit and have lunch with folks that would just uh, take a take apart an engine over the weekend for fun. Yeah, uh, and they never quite got that uh, that petrol straight. heads, <clears throat> as they call them. In. And so for me, P- per- per- um, per- Peugeot was my uh, my office space moment, in that. I, I never really cared too much about the company itself or the brand, which led me to be a lot more comfortable with risk and asking for things and doing things that others wouldn't, simply because the worst it could do to me would be to fire me, which I was okay with. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's a very French. Um, you, um, you worked on a cool project over there, though. Um, yeah. Uh, so, to, to so I did the, the first implementation of, uh, of MarTech out of the UK, which was fun. Um, we, uh, I was working originally on their direct marketing uh, initiatives, in the, and they had this, uh, this horrible mainframe system to process physical address of people that would send, be sent to the printer. And, uh, and I did the first Oracle implementation uh, in, the, in the UK to manage that program, and then I managed the first uh, internet and intranet program there. So I, I, you know, you know, I was, uh, my role evolved as MarTech, came to life, the sort of MarTech V0, V1. Um, and then once we did this successfully in the, in the UK, I got hired to do the same thing in other countries and, and sort of really grow with the, the, the first internet boom. But I stayed there for about a year and then moved on to the startup world after this because it, it really felt like it was uh, riding a dinosaur in, uh, at the time. Right. So you, you, um, you shook off the chains of corporate America and, or I guess corporate France. Right. Um, and what was that first startup experience? So first startup was uh, over at a company called Viant. So Viant was one of the v- very first um, internet cons- uh, pure play uh, consulting firms slash incubators. Strategic Internet uh, Services, I believe they called it. I, I think so. Well, you know, I think they, they're, they're f- the name, even before it became Viant, was uh, S- uh, Silicon Valley Internet Partners, yeah. SVIP. Um, and, uh, and it was a ton of fun. It was a ton of fun for many reasons. One is that it was the first really diverse uh, group of people, both uh, culturally, ethnically, uh, skill-wise, that I was working with, with technologists, designers, uh, business people. Some came from McKinsey. Others came from hardcore tech shops. 
Um, and second, the, the, the body of work, which was to work with this fast-growing startup, was fascinating as well. Sure. And I also felt like I was really... Uh, uh, many of these folks were in their first jobs, and I had worked for just a few years in, in the corporate world. And, I, and it, it felt to me like I was at odds in a good way with people, where they had a way of thinking that they could walk on water, uh, that gravity did not apply. Yeah. And I, I, f- I didn't feel this way. Like, I felt like gravity, like the, the 9.81 always catches up with you. Yeah. You know, for, for the benefit of folks who weren't part of it, you know, Viant and its, its um, parallel company, Scient, were sort of ground zero for the dot-com bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all these companies were scrambling to figure out how to use the Internet and build the systems to do so. And, and the old guard professional services firms didn't have those capabilities in-house. And so... Multiple companies, including one that I led called Primex, which was a sort of second-tier company, um, stepped into that vacuum. And Viant and Scient were, were absolutely the leaders. Like a remarkable story of scaling a professional services organization in record time. And, um, you know, it was, it was really, it was, for me, those two companies were really at the center of, of you know, not necessarily the dot-com bubble, but, but existing companies embracing internet technology as a way to move information. Yeah, and it actually, it's, a, it's a great point. And I think um, the, the learning, if you fast forward to today and what's, what's happening in the digital world, um, is that it's always very interesting to think of, uh, of problems from a, an sort of the native viewpoint. Like if you're born with the technology available today, how would you shape your business? Yeah. And then try to patch it back to now. How do I, you know, make make this match reality? And that's really that was really the world of Vine back then. Yeah, exactly. All right, so um, that that had to be a crazy ride. How did it end for you? I think I was employee 120 or something when I joined, um, and I was uh, probably employees 20 and some when I left, with a spike at 1500 in between. See, so it was a, <laughs> it was a, a crazy ride. <laughs> Uh, open and close a handful of offices, um, and uh, and so after after so Vint went uh, got got bought by well before we yeah, before yeah. we move on because I think this sets up our conversation <laughs> later. What did you take away from that experience? Right, hiring people and firing people, uh, the the whole journey up the curve and then the whole journey back down. Well, I I think that back then and you could again apply this to to today. Um, the the, the some very basic principles of economics uh, were just forgotten, both by the the people leading these enterprises as well as the investors behind them. Um, and this is a stuff that always catches up with you, no matter what. Yeah. And so, so I think the the whole notion, you know, of a small boutique because fifteen hundred people in consulting is not a big shop. Right. A small boutique consulting from going IPO is crazy. Like it just doesn't make any economic sense that this should be successful. Um, and I think that in different ways we see similar things that have happened more recently. Uh, that you know I would challenge challenge the viability of. Right. So for for me the the learning was two twofolds um, on the. The div- sort of the developing side of things that you that could be done different is uh, qualities uh, is should always trump scale. Uh, are we allowed to use the word trump on this show? We are. Okay. In this context, we are. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and the second one was actually a remarkable uh, ability by Viant as a group of people to keep on hiring talent. 
So even when we got to 1500, the, the average quality of the person joining, both in terms of a professional and the ability that they bring, as well as just being a good human being, was stunning. And I have never seen to this day anything that has been on at this scale um, that has worked. And so, you know, on, in very small ways, we're trying to implement some of these small things in, in our small company. Yeah. Um, but it was really remarkable. It was an HR triumph. I mean, the, the economics you're talking about, which is like, you know, a professional services company with a hard cap on gross margin. I mean, you can only rate prices so, yeah. so hard when you're tied to, you know, bodies at some level. Um, was a triumph of execution in terms of scaling that business and enabling those people. And, um, and, and a lot of it really was around the sort of, you know, HR stuff, you know, that, yeah. that drove the enterprise value. Yeah. Um, all right. So, um, what did you leave there to go do? So I took a year off after, after Viant went, uh, to, uh, improve my, uh, my Spanish down in, uh, in Costa Rica and Chile. Yeah. Uh, work ended up catching up with me. So a bunch of uh, Valentine alumni had started a business down in Chile that I ended up helping. Um, and um, so I did some some freelance management consulting in some random capacity for a couple of years. Paying the bills. Uh, paying the bills, having fun, traveling. So, you know, Chile, Brazil, Costa Rica, Portugal. Didn't suck. You ate well. It was okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and then I joined, uh, another company that was, uh, founded by, um, a former Vine employee, uh, called Invivia. Uh, Invivia was and still is to this day, a, a design shop on, um, today I think it's called augmented reality. So they, they had built technology and designed to do seamless computing and they were just way ahead of their time where there was no application to speak of uh, at the time. Um, but it was, uh, it was fascinating for me, the, uh, aside from working with uh, top talent, so the designers coming out of the, uh, the, design, the architecture school, the design school here at, uh, in, in Cambridge and in, in Harvard uh, that were just stunning professionals. Um, the, what was interesting to me was to have the experience of what it meant to be one of the first employees, but not the founder, hmm. and how frustrating that can be, that there's just some level of decision that you don't have access to. Right. And so I, I stayed there for, uh, for a period of time, uh, helped grow the business a, a little bit, and then decided to leave because of this uh, obvious thing. But um, nonetheless, really impressive, uh, impressive business and group of people. Um, and then after that, uh, I got lured back into the, uh, the Viant world and joined uh, Bob Jet's next uh, adventure called Optaros. Optaros was a hardcore technology shop um, that was assembling open source technologies. And uh, there was a whole bunch of, uh, of ex-Viant that had joined this group, and I was brought in to, to help build the, build the project management practice there. So it c- comes back to the quality of people there, right? And Mike's... my. Um my experience of, of many Viant alums is that they tend to congregate, you know. Oh, no kidding. Um, and it sounds like that that uh, certainly been the case for you as well. Absolutely. Fast forward to today, there are four of us at Tracker. Yeah, there so, you go. Yes. So um, what do you think Optaros got right and what do you think they got wrong? Um, are we on the record? <laughs> <laughs> if it's, if yeah, it's a, no, no, no it's, it's, totally, it's totally fine. I'm, I'm, I'm joking. Um, what did they get right? What did they get wrong? Um, I, I think that they, they 
overshot the ability to monetize the, the whole open source story. Uh, and very quickly ended up turning into um, uh, more of a s- traditional consulting shop. Right. Um, I also think that they they probably worked on projects that were too big for for the size of the company. I mean, that the when I joined the project that uh, that I was on had uh, I think more more consultants on the on the contract than they were employees at Optaros at the time. So hmm. it, it was just you know it's dicey when you start doing deals that are bigger than you can you can handle. Um, they got they got right the HR thing again. I mean again stunning group of people. Uh, good, good folks, really talented. I learned a ton on the on the technology side as well. Uh, very much in the same way, Nvidia had challenged me on the design side. Optaros is on the on the technology side, right. like a sort of open doors to what it really meant to be really good at what you do. Right. Um, and yeah, I think the the one thing where um, I've I've always struggled, and it was a case at Viant uh, and the case at Optaros later, is this uh, this drive that many many shops that start on the consulting side strive to become product companies, yeah, and it never works. Yeah, um, very different cultures. It's and it's it the mechanics can't work. Like the economics don't make sense. Yeah. and that that was my argument with uh, with Bob and team. Said, you know, if if you can't dedicate your best team to work on your product, it won't succeed. Right. And there's no way that you can because something's going to happen, and your best consultants are going to be called on a client project, and it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So you have a culture of billability, right? A good consulting firm yeah. runs on yeah. on billable hours and and exactly. utilization rate, and yeah. and uh, those things are antithetical to uh, exactly. you know the kind of discipline you need to build a product. It doesn't work. I've had to learn that lesson a couple of times. <laughs> Um, unfortunately. So you should tattoo it because it never works. I should. I should <laughs> tattoo that someplace. Maybe I have Pierre Louis. <laughs> um, so, um, so you've developed this inventory of skills and experiences. You learned how to sell. You learned, um, you know, that a business can't escape its, its fundamental economics, you know, yeah. learned about technology, learned about HR, learned about the value of being a founder and you went mm-hmm. off and and uh, did that yourself. So exactly. uh, maybe tell us a little bit about the origins of Tracker, where it came from, and, and yeah. uh, your, your journey to this point. So when uh, I, I left Optaros, I was, um, I was just really to, to move on to doing something else. I thought that I would do a little bit of consulting uh, in the meantime. And the, the one thing that had stayed with me throughout my experiences was that I, I was really good and interested in... Uh, sort of like a, the business version of uh, rapid prototyping for that you employ in design and today in technology you could agile uh, development. Sure. But apply to the to the business and and so right after Optaros, I ended up uh, partnering with a handful of uh, of businesses, some that were more established, many that were just one guy with an idea. Um, that. Um, uh, and to just basically help them with the process, try to unfold what it would be to quickly iterate on an idea to figure out whether or not it was worth pursuing and to what extent. And so I did this with a handful of, uh, of people in my network. One of them was uh, David, my co-founder at, uh, at Tracker. And what was funny is that I walked into, and he was going to tell you how naive I was, I walked into this thing thinking that process can actually solve the problem. What I discovered is that grind 
solves. Yeah. So brute force. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so very quickly, uh, there were among the things I was working on, there were two or three that showed promise. One of them that had the exact same business model as uh, Airbnb today, except that the team behind it didn't put the effort. Uh, and I would put myself into as guilty as uh, anybody else on this. Right. Um, and, uh, and David, in the meantime, was just churning uh, this thing that he had in his mind that was a frustration of his. And I, and I joined him in the, in the frustration uh, that he had. And, and it's sort of like it took a life of its own. I ended up doing this full time and we turned the, this uh, idea or project into a company. What is Tracker? So Tracker today is an influencer management platform. So we offer the ability for marketers to manage relationships with the, the people they deem important to their business. Uh, that now the, the, the coin term is influencers, uh, but it could be a social influencer, a blogger, it could be a journalist, an analyst, an important customer, an investor, an employee, uh, but people that um, as a marketer you need to pay special attention to because they represent one of these levers that marketers co constantly seek in the business. Right? The whole purpose of marketing is to create leverage. Right. And so influencers as a f are the physical representation of, uh, of a lever. So what we've, uh, what we've discovered over time is that when you focus on, on these people and really on the hand-to-hand, hand-to-hand uh, combat in uh, building a relationship with them, your results become disproportionate as they become a fan of yours. Um, and so we built a system that is, um, is a way for companies to do this at scale. And so that's Tracker today. That's not how the company was born. The company was born without a business model originally. <laughs> um, it was born out of the fact that uh, both David and I uh, were saddened by the state of uh, the web and the fact that the choices in front of us were either the world of spam in the open web, whether it's uh, you know, the, the SEO game search result uh, into Google or else, or the sad world of Facebook and the, uh, the echo chamber of opinions that we've all experienced into our Facebook groups. Right. And we thought that there ought to be a better way. And we, the first version of Tracker was actually that, what that better way constituted. And it, uh, what it was is, um, is just an ability that we had found to identify the opinion makers, authorities, however you want to call it, around any given topic by applying very much what, what Google was doing to web pages to people and just pointing, showing pointers um, towards the people that were the most recognized in a space by the rest of the community. Right, and by implication, those with the most authority, you know, right. um, add the most value. At some level, there's got to be a relationship between those two. two exactly, yeah. exactly. And so what we, that's really what we stumbled on, right? And, and again, we had no, no business model to speak of behind it. We knew that there was value because what we had figured out is a way to extract the signal from the noise. And our only skill after this was really... Um, that we, we were just good observers. And we saw that the clients that we had found um, that were working for these companies who were interested in finding these influential people had already defined a workflow for themselves on what to do with that data. And we ended up mapping that workflow into a software.
All right, so starting with this capability, I got an update on the business yesterday, um, and uh, you guys have re- built a really nice business on on the back of this capability, incredible brands as customers, and uh, now global reach, and um, really great economics. You figured out um, you know, uh, the secret to customers you made money on and customers you didn't. Um, what I'd love to discuss is is your thought process around when's the right time to go raise money. You guys raised a little angel money and, and iterated uh, in an environment without, you know, you were accountable to results and forward progress, certainly, uh, to your angels and to the team, but, but you really waited to go get institutional money um, to, uh, you know, to begin to scale this thing until the point where the business justified it, not just the technology and the promise and, you know, the usual things people raise venture on. So um, talk a little bit about, about, you know, how do you think about when is the right time to raise money and why? Sure. So uh, I would say that there's probably no hard and fast rule on when, um, but much more that along the way, you always need to be aligned with your investors on possible outcomes and, and risk. And what I see a lot of, uh, in a lot of my peers is that this tends to be an afterthought, that the fact that there's a fundamental misalignment between what constitutes a good exit for a VC that may be very comfortable with a small startup failing on its way to the, the, three, the three, three, you know, like three years, three times growth, yeah. blah, 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 unicorn. Yeah. So many VCs are totally comfortable um, making or forcing most of the investment fail. And I don't think that story is told to entrepreneurs. That's when you take that money early, that's what you signed up for. And I think uh, founders and entrepreneurs just need to think, is this what you want for your business? And if it is, that's fine. So I have no qualms with folks that go down this path. And, you know, some of them end up being successful. Just like if I spend more time, um, you know, playing basketball, maybe I'll grow one foot and play the NBA one day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So unlikely, but possible. Yeah. yeah. So um, so yeah, I think it's uh, that that's really what it comes down to is just to make sure that you thought through the alignment with your investors. Uh, and so for us, <clears throat> what happened was that we were just a little bit early to market in our category. So when we launched the business, uh, influencer marketing was not even a coin term. Um, and so we knew that we were still in the discovery process of figuring out, is there a value, is there a market there, and how big that market. And each time that we figured out something new, where we found uh, a niche that was interesting, when we found a bigger opportunity and uh, w- a way to make more money with clients, we were able to, to further qualify them. Um, this is when we decided to raise a little bit more angel money from people that we had a clear alignment on, hey, this is the stage of the business we're in, so we ask you to be patient uh, because we haven't figured it out yet. Right. Um, and I think VCs typically are not very skilled at being patient. It's not the business model. Right. Um, and so, so I think for us, it took us a long time to get to the point where we now know there is a market. We know the product market fit. We know how to build uh, value for customers. And so for, for us, the notion of, uh, of taking more money at the stage like where we are now makes sense and we can have that same conversation with VCs on this is what we think is going to happen and make sure that there is a, a, a consensus on, uh, on what constitutes value. So many things flow from that alignment yeah. with your capital provider. 
reduction in stress and hopefully uh, an outcome that serves the interests of both management and capital and, you know, the ability to kind of move gradually and wait for the market. I mean, part of what you're saying is you you created this business before the world was really ready for it in some sense. And you were mm-hmm. kind of, you even if you had raised 50 million bucks four years ago, you would have had to kind of bide your time, keep your powder dry until the world caught up to your idea in a right. sense, right? Which, um, by the way, we probably would not be around anymore if it had been the case. Yeah. Uh, for the right. reason I was mentioning, right, right, because they would want their they would want to either write it off or sell exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it does create a perverse incentive. Among those various rationales, like which one sticks out for you? Was it is it that you just don't want to run a business where some guy's busting your balls about what 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 he wants when it's not what you want? Is it that you really wanted this to work for some reason? Like what what was it? Well, what was the driver? I've just I've always. Uh, despise the notion of failing for the wrong reasons. Like if, uh, if we're fundamentally wrong or if we don't work hard enough uh, on something, it's, you know, I, I, I can accept defeat. But failing for the wrong reasons where you end up doing the wrong things for the wrong motivations is just, it, it's not something that I can do. Right. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just against like my, everything that I am. Sure. So, so for me it was very important. And, and as a result of this as well, um, what's happened for, for us in the past, and maybe I should have said this about the, sort of the, the capital raise, is that very often um, an entrepreneurs, especially, especially in the early stages, will seek out uh, val- validation for, for what we do f- from the wrong people. And the wrong people would be investors. They would be advisors that will you know, tell you a good, uh, talk a good game or uh, invest a little bit of money instead of seeking it from customers yeah. and people that actually use your stuff. Yeah. And so one of the, the rules that I've always had uh, when, when it comes to fundraising, small or big, is to have a ratio that I need to hit on customer visits versus investor visits. Yeah. And what it does, it, it opens up, it creates options uh, and it also so brings you back to reality. On um, you know, I met with a couple of our clients yesterday before coming here to uh, to Boston, and it's important for us even to this stage that we keep catering to the people that create value in our in our business. So there are options out there, and what what I found in the past. So this is actually our, our first, our second go around in um, in uh, in the sort of the more formal fundraising thing. And the first time, the thing that happened, we're, we're trying to raise a, a, a small round, is that by the time that we got to a term sheet, I had gotten from customers the same amount of money for no dilution because I was yeah. visiting these customers. A dollar of revenue is always Ex- better than exactly. a dollar of capital. I, it's amazing to me that more people don't sort of see that. Um, but, but it's the truth, no question. Yeah, and, and they, you know, we live in a culture of, uh, of hyper-growth and unicorn uh, aspirations and whatnot. And I think we, too often we forget the fundamentals of, uh, of business. Yeah, that's a hard... You've learned that lesson a couple of times in your career. Yes, exactly. Um, it's also interesting to me that you, know, you, you began your journey as a problem solver, and it sounds like you're happy to solve problems, but, but, but it breaks your heart a little bit to create them. <laughs> um, so, so why create a problem for yourself and like exactly. you know, risk your business for something that you had control over, yeah. right? And, uh, and by the way, I have the exact same uh, qualms with uh, with the team itself. Like I, I hate wasting time internally 
on stuff that shouldn't be. Yeah. Like I want all of our energy to be spent outwards yeah. to make progress, to help the clients, to solve these issues. And I have zero patience for sort of the, the fake problems uh, that we create on ourselves. Yeah. This is the Obama foreign policy doctor. <laughs> Don't do stupid stuff. Um, exactly. And, uh, but, but it's hard. It, it is, there is definitely pressure, um, entrepreneur to entrepreneur and in the market at large to like put out the flag of having raised $5 million from, you know, huge go VC and, and have that, you know, use the word validation. I think it's exactly the right word, you know. Yeah, I, I, I agree. There's, uh, there's pressure, and I would argue that the folks that will ultimately uh, succeed are the ones that can handle it. Um, and very often for people that have gone through into this rodeo a few times, you learn it the hard way, and the second time you learn to be a little bit more patient. And yes, you know, you may have this, uh, this big raise that you've done, but at the end of the day, you end up with... Uh, Less money, less control, less everything, because you've done this at the wrong time or with the wrong people. So I think you're, th- there's a lesson to be learned for, for all of us, and it's uh, then, you know, have to become smart and not let it happen a second time. Yeah. I, um, I like to talk about the difference between moving forward and making progress. Mm-hmm. You know, moving forward is a direction that's defined relative to your current location. Making progress requires the identification of an endpoint. Yeah, that is where you want to go, and yeah. and it's possible to move forward with with capital without making progress towards yeah. an outcome that is that's the thing you set out to achieve. I, right? I, I agree, and I think there's also another dimension uh, that to me is really important um, in entrepreneurship in general is to think of your venture, your company, as something that cannot be a zero sum game. So it's not that you make money on the back of other people. It's how do you create more value for the whole? Yeah. Because the minute that you're, you're able to create an equation that is a positive sum game for everyone, this is where you have the most levers. All right, hallelujah. You know, we live in a world of billion dollar venture funds and unicorn farms. And um, it's, it's so common for people to, you know, fly the flag of how much money they've raised um, and get excited about that as validation of themselves or their business or, some other aspect of their product value proposition. Um, And in the end, I think it's the entrepreneur who ends up suffering. It shouldn't be about helping your VC fund put more of their capital to work. It should be about putting just enough money into the business to give the common shareholders, the founders, uh, what they need to create a business that thrives and that helps them achieve their objectives. Uh, Important dose of reality and I think a really useful perspective Uh, from Pierre Luic, uh, really wishing he and the Tracker team well uh, on this next leg of their journey. All right, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Thanks for sticking around, and we will see you next week.